Putin plays a lot to his domestic audience. And while he's a member of the Council of Europe, he can say that he is abiding by human rights and he can play his political games. Hello, and welcome to the Matrix Law Pod with me, Richard Hermer, together with my colleague, Helen Matfield. Now, there's never a shortage of topics for a podcast on the rule of law, and this week has thrown up a real embarrassment of riches. Here at home, the never-ending saga of a Prime Minister whose seeming desire to party during lockdown is matched only by his tendency to dissemble. But it raises profound issues of accountability for non-compliance with laws and for standards in public life. In the United States, the announcement of the retirement of Justice Breyer from the Supreme Court has fueled the debate, if it actually needed any more fuel, about a politicised judiciary, not least when his replacement, however liberal, will not alter the entrenched Conservative supermajority on its apex court, set to last for at least a generation. And that's a discussion that has added piquancy is as we await the decision in Dobbs and Jackson, which looks set to remove a woman's constitutional right to an abortion. And in Poland this week, we had a tragic insight into what judge-driven constitutional bars on a woman's right to choose look like in real time, with the first recorded death of a woman following the ban as a consequence of doctors' refusal to perform a timely abortion that would have saved her life. And also in the headlines across the world this week has been the growing tension on the Russian and Ukrainian border with the threat of invasion or incursion. Again, raising profound issues about the legality of armed conflict in international law, not necessarily President Putin's first guiding principle. And in this podcast, we're going to return to Russia in more detail. But first... Helen, lots to discuss. Let's start with Boris and uh, Partygate. Uh, The Grey Report uh, might actually be out by the time uh, this is broadcast. Uh, Is this, though, actually a rule of law issue or is it only really about politics? Is there there actually a profound fundamental issue at stake here? Well, I mean, I didn't want to sound po-faced you know it's much easier to say oh look he's brought his own booze in in the house of commons or you know having cake and eating cake and ha 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 um but actually i really do think it's a rule of law issue because the idea that the um person who makes the rules a doesn't understand what a rule is and when something's a law and when it's guidance which is quite clear from all the the way the coronavirus legislation was introduced in the first place but then when it is a rule says well oh, goodness me, I had no idea that there was a rule while other people are obeying it or being fined for breaching it or suffering because of not um, complying with it. I really do think it matters. Um, And it's not just a a politically shocking thing. It's about um, those who make laws abiding by them. Yeah, I mean, to me, I I mean, unsurprisingly, I I agree. Um, There's also the kind of the lying yeah. And what it says about standards in public life and, you know, let's not go down this Trumpian, I can make a brazen lie and get away with it approach. It's all very worrying for well, our standards. Yeah, there's that Peter Hennessy thing about the good chap school of government that in the end rules require people who understand the spirit of them. But they do it. I mean, I think it's a, 
a sort of symbiotic relationship between the rule and the understanding of the rule that makes a society that respects the rule of law. And if you don't have that sort of normative respect, it's just what can I get away with? Well, then you're really um, in a very tricky position. So um, the United States, um, I mean, we, we, we've had podcasts on the US before. We are no doubt going to have podcasts uh, again, both on the, the nomination process and certainly the uh, Mississippi decision when it comes down. But beyond the kind of hype about a nomination and particular cases, um, how does that apex court in America retain its legitimacy when it's becoming so hyper-partisan? Well, I thought you might ask me that. and I don't think I know the answer. Um, I mean, I, you know, I think it is a real problem and it's why um, it is important that judges keep themselves separate from the fray. And when I sometimes express frustration at judges in, in this country who I think are overcautious about keeping out of issues merely because they arrive from a political context, it really does matter that you can't necessarily um, tell and you certainly don't know in public uh, which side which, which political party a judge supports, for example. And uh, um, I, I do think it's worrying because then the Supreme Court just becomes another political actor. And if it's another political actor, then that again undermines the rule of law because why should you care what they say any more than a politician you happen to disagree with what they say? And then finally to Poland. Um, obviously a member of the Council of Europe subject to the European Court, the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights. What, 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 what hope might there be of a challenge to the constitutional ban on abortion? Well, I would have thought there was a pretty strong case, actually, because it's been the case um, for a long time in the uh, Europe, law of the European Court of Human Rights, um, cases like Vaux in France, that um, a fetus isn't a person. You're not balancing the rights of the mother with the rights of the child. An unborn child doesn't have rights. And it's also um, clear from the case law that if you prevent um, abortion in cases of rape or incest or threats to others' life, then that's um, breach of Article 3, the the right to be free of inhuman and cruel and degrading treatment. Where it becomes more problematic is the slightly more nuanced um, bans on abortion or difficulties in acquiring, in, in getting access to an abortion. And that's where it becomes an aspect of private life and the European Court of Human Rights, going back to what we were just saying about um, judges being chary of inter intervening in morally sensitive, politically sensitive issues, may say, well, that's a question for, for politics. But I do think... The sense is that the law is moving more to respect for a woman's individual autonomy. Um, I'm quite interested also in whether you might bring in um, the duty to secure equal enjoyment of rights, because it's very hard to imagine context in which something like pregnancy were to happen to a man's body. Um, and you would say, we're awfully sorry, but we don't think, we don't think you should be um, being treated for that so sorry. Yeah, I suspect a different um, outcome. Mm. Yeah. Helen, thanks. Okay. We return to Russia for our main topic this week. One litmus test for the strength or weakness of the rule of law in a country is how its government regulates and treats human rights organisations. Recent crackdowns on human rights NGOs in countries such as Hungary, Hong Kong and Israel have been associated with increasing authoritarianism and are often advanced under the false guise that targeted NGOs are said to be proxies for foreign agents. In Russia, 
the longest established human rights NGO, is Memorial. Founded in the wake of Glasnost and Perestroika, with Andrei Sakharov as its first chair, its initial mandate was to raise public awareness of the historic abuses perpetrated during the Stalin regime, to quite literally memorialise the experience of victims of totalitarianism, and to do so as a means of promoting the values of contemporary democracy and pluralism. Quickly, however, the mandate of Memorial developed to include challenging contemporary human rights abuses in Russia in light of the increasing advance of authoritarianism there. None of this work has endeared Memorial to the Putin government, particularly in recent years when they've become the target of increasing government and government-sponsored intimidation, including repeated calls for their closure. This culminated in the decision of the Supreme Court of Russia a month ago to the day that we are recording to order the closure of Memorial for violating a foreign agent law amid accusations that it was creating a false image of the Russian state rather than remembering its glorious history. To talk about these events and the wider context of the rule of law in Russia, we're delighted to be joined by two guests. Tatiana Glushkova is the legal director of Memorial Human Rights Centre and Jess Gavron is legal director of the European Human Rights Advocacy Centre who partnered with Memorial on cases against Russia before the European Court of Human Rights. Welcome to you uh, both. And um, Tatiana, can I um, begin with you? And before um, talking about the current challenges that Memorial is facing, can I kind of start with Memorial's journey at the beginning? Uh, And I've given a kind of a brief overview but perhaps you can describe why it was created and why from a human rights perspective in a kind of a new and emerging democracy, it was thought so important to turn to the past and establish the truth about past abuses. Yes, um, like the first point I'd like to make that I'm not legal director, I'm a senior lawyer at Human Rights Center Memorial. But uh, as in regards to your question, that first of all, Memorial was established in the uh, late 1980s by uh, a group of activists. It was a classic grassroots mo- movement. It consisted from, um, from the victims of uh, political repressions of the Stalin's era, because many of them were alive at the time. Uh, on the other hand, mm, mm, many of those who <clears throat> participated in that movement were uh, dissidents of the late Soviet era. And many of uh, them were also victims of political repressions. Um, and another group of activists were young activists of Perestroika who wanted uh, democratic changes in society. Their goals were very practical. Uh, the relatives of uh, those who were executed uh, during uh, the Stalin's era or those who died in uh, labor camps uh, wanted to know the uh, fate of their loved ones. They also wanted the names and the fates of all the victims of political repressions to be uh, known. They wanted uh, rehabilitation for all of them. They wanted to make the uh, investigative archives ac- uh, accessible, uh, accessible to the public. Uh, they wanted the society to understand uh, and to, uh, to, to learn about the scale of Soviet political repressions. And of course, the uh, final purpose was that such repressions 
will never be possible again. What was the reaction of the Russian public and the Russian government when this work first started? Well, as I said, Memorial was a grassroots movement. So there were many, uh, so it was uh, largely supported by public in uh, many uh, different um, post-Soviet uh, uh, republics. Uh, so in um, all, all around, so it was like all Soviet movement. Um, and the government, uh, well, first, uh, uh, at the first stage, uh, memorial was not welcomed by the government and uh, it was very problematic to, for memorial to register officially. And there is a legend, it's just a legend, when uh, that, uh, when Sakharov was dead um, and uh, during his funeral, uh, that Gorbachev asked his widow, uh, what can I do for you? And she said, uh, please register memorial officially. And soon after that, memorial was registered. But that's a legend. Right. And then the, the mandate of the organization um, uh, 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 widened. So it went from um, establishing and trying to establish the truth about past abuses to addressing contemporary human rights uh, abuses in Russia. What 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 caused that change? Uh, well, uh, soon after um, the USSR collapsed, um, several uh, armed conflicts began um, within the territory of the former Soviet Union. The Transnistria conflict, the uh, Ossetia Ingush conflict, uh, civil war in Tajikistan, war in uh, uh, Karabakh, the first Chechen war in Russia. Um, some of members of Memorial uh, uh, understood their task not only to reveal uh, the truth about the human rights violations of the past, but also to uh, uh, work with uh, this human rights to somehow um, protect uh, human rights uh, in modern Russia. Um, that's why uh, very soon uh, there was a human rights group uh, formed within Memorial. Uh, and um, in 1992, uh, Human Rights and Memorial became a separate organization. Uh, uh, when Human Rights and Memorial was established, uh, it dealt uh, with um, human rights violations during armed conflicts. Um, uh, that how the hotspots program and uh, program migration and law developed because the hotspots program uh, worked within uh, the uh, conflict area and migration and law program helped those who helped um, those who had to leave their homes uh, and to go to another countries or to, to, to Russia or to other regions of Russia, like uh, people from Chechnya, many of them uh, had to leave Chechnya during the war. In 1998, Russia became a member of European Convention and uh, Russian people got the right to lodge applications with USHR. And that was how uh, the USHR program or the program Human Rights Protection through International Mechanism was established, 
with the help of Iraq, of course, uh, because uh, 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 Russian people got an instrument to uh, uh, got an instrument that uh, allowed them to do something when they were not able to achieve justice at the national level. And the first applications memorial lodged with the European Court were applications concerning uh, such grave human rights violations as um, uh, abductions, extrajudicial killings in the North Caucasus, and so on. Uh, in 2009, it became obvious that the words political prisoners is not something that belongs to the Soviet past, that there are political prisoners in nowadays Russia, and that's how political prisoners program was established. And since then, Memorial has um, extended its mandate to helping, uh, to providing, first of all, to uh, compiling a list of political prisoners, and second, uh, providing to providing legal help to those who are uh, prosec who are <clears throat> politically prosecuted in Russia. So, Tatiana, I'll come back in a moment to um, talk about the Russian state reaction to the work that you've been um, carrying out. Can I just ask, though, Jess, uh, about the collaborative work that you've been doing um, in Strasbourg with Memorial? Um, the types of cases and the types of outcome that your collaboration has produced. Hi, Richard and Helen. Thank you for inviting me on this podcast. Um, the European Human Rights Advocacy Centre, which is called ERAC, uh, was founded in 2003 to litigate cases arising from the Chechen conflict, as um, you've heard from Tatiana. And these cases were the sort of things she's discussed, the aerial bombardment of villages and the many, many cases of abductions extrajudicial executions and enforced disappearances. And our partner from the very beginning was Memorial. So we worked very closely with Memorial on each case and we brought expertise from the international and regional systems and standards. And together we've won more than 100 judgments on enforced disappearances from the North Caucasus. Um, for example, Isayeva against Russia is a leading case on the use of force in the aerial bombardment of Katiyat village and actually in which civilians were killed. And um, it's actually one of the court's stronger conflict judgments uh, to date, seeing as court seems to be pulling back from that. We've since expanded our work into Georgia, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, Armenia. But in Russia, with Memorial, we've litigated numerous groundbreaking judgments, um, cases like Tageyeva against Russia, where together we represented more than 350 hostages and relatives of hostages from the Beslan School terror siege, in which the court found four separate violations of the right to life. Uh, Zakharov against Russia, where the court held that the Russian laws on secret surveillance of telephone communications breached the convention. And the case challenging the foreign agents law, which was the law that um, has caused Memorial to be liquidated, uh, and in which Memorial is an applicant. Um, We've also litigated the trafficking and forced labour of women migrants, protest cases, numerous security forces violations. And I would say that in this time, we've witnessed Putin's Russia become more and more oppressive. And, uh, and I think last year, in which we saw ended with the liquidation of Memorial, it represented, I, I would say, I'd be interested to know what Tatiana thinks, a sea change in the flagrancy of the violations um, 
by the government, starting perhaps with the assassination attempt on Alexei Navalny and ending with the liquidation of Memorial, and I'm sure that's not the end of it. Um, we've had a fantastic collaboration with Memorial for over 18 years. So as well as being a really shocking development for human rights and civil society in Russia, this is also very personally sad and disturbing as it affects our partner lawyers and our relationships with them and our future litigation. So look, um, an incredibly successful um, track record before the courts. And um, as Helen and I know here, if you litigate successfully human rights cases in um, England, you tend to get sort of applause and acclaim. But if you're in a fragile society, you put yourself at extraordinary risk. And Tatiana kind of turning to that and the kind of the next bit of Memorial's journey, um, the, um, could you just describe the um, sort of campaign against the organisation and then the most recent decision of the um, uh, uh, Russian Supreme Court? Yes, uh, well, um, the uh, campaign against not only Memorial, but against all independent NGOs functioning in Russia started uh, in 2012 when the foreign agent law was adopted. Uh, Human Rights Center Memorial was among the first uh, organization bunch of first bunch of organizations that were put on the foreign agent list by the Minister of Justice. It happened in 2014. International Memorial joined us uh, two years later in 2016. Uh, the foreign agent legislation um, is uh, known because is not uh, the, the main problem with foreign agent legislation is that uh, you are not able to understand what you should do to implement it because it says that you should label all your publication with a foreign agent label but it doesn't say what a publication is or how the label should look like because and finally uh, in, so the legislation was adopted in 2012, and finally, on 20 on 30 of December 2021, we were we learned how this label should look like. So, what exact words should be put on the publication uh, in order to make the Minister of Justice and the and Justice uh, the Supreme Court happy. Uh, so it took nine years to uh, clarify the requirement, the uh, how the label should look like. But uh, nevertheless, the uh, or, or mean, uh, meaning of the term publication remains unknown. So, for example, is my business card a publication? Should I label it if I give it to someone? Is, for example, a program of the event that is distributed among uh, the participants, a publication, and so on, and so on, and so on. Uh, we tried to receive uh, answers to these questions from the Minister of Justice, from the Prosecutor's Office, from the Roscomnadzor Office, it's uh, the uh, governmental body that deals with internet. We were not able to receive them. Uh, the foreign agent legislation is designed in such a way that it allows to fine any NGO that is on, on that list uh, 
as many times as uh, government wishes and in the end to liquidate it. Another problem is the smelling campaign, the continuing smelling campaign against all foreign agent that uh, continues in Russia since the adoption of this legislation. Uh, so all organizations that are on the list are targeted by this campaign, but Memorial, um, it is a huge target uh, and it is uh, mentioned and targeted uh, more often than any other organization. And the main uh, uh, purpose of this campaign is to uh, mm, form uh, the image of memorial, of international memorial, as organization uh, that is aimed as rehabilitation Nazism and of human rights center memorial as of a, an organization glorifying terrorism. So this is um this is an order made by by the Supreme Court closing down Russia's oldest human rights NGO, which is again from a kind of an English perspective almost unimaginable. Um, what does it tell us uh, about the independence of the judiciary in Russia and it, the, the, the relationship with with the, with the executive with the state? You see. Um... Um, lawyers who are practicing law in Russia, I think um, they um, don't um, even like independence uh, of judiciary in Russia is kind of a joke because uh, it actually does not exist and uh, everyone understands that judicial decisions uh, they are um, it is not something um, that the judicial decision is, uh, it is not something that the judge um, the, the, is not, doesn't reflect the opinion of the judge. It reflects the opinion of the uh, state of the government. So there, in, there is no such thing as separation, uh, real separation of powers in today's Russia. Now, almost immediately after the order of the Supreme Court, the European Court in Strasbourg um, put in place an interim measures order, um, ordering the Russian state to keep you open in, uh, 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 for now. What's been the effect of that? Have you, have you stayed open as a result of the Strasbourg order? Uh, so the, um, this Rule 39 decision is for, on the one hand is um, a really great decision for us because um, everyone who works with the European Court understands how difficult it is to get a positive uh, Rule 39 decision, even in cases when your client's life is in danger. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, we find ourselves in a very strange position by now. Uh, because uh, according to Russian legislation, once the uh, national judgment becomes uh, um, effective, we uh, should dissolve memorial ourselves. So the no government agency will liquidate memorial. It should be done by ourselves. So if we do that, it will be us who failed to uh, comply with the Rule 39 decision. But if we don't do that, uh, the um, consequences may vary from uh, 
forced liquidation by the government to criminal prosecution of the head of memorial. Um, because failure to implement the national judgment in Russia is a crime punishable by up to one year of imprisonment. Can I ask you? And this is, and of course, this is the consequence. We, no one of us wants to to happen. Could I? Could I? Yeah, of course. Um, and 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 Jess, coming to you, and in terms of the interim measures and the kind of substantive challenge. Um, before Strasbourg, uh, 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 what's your feeling now in terms of their approach to cases in the Russian state, and, and obviously this case in particular, but more generally now how they're they're approaching Russia and how Russia is approaching the court? Yeah, well, those are really those are really good questions. Um, I think how so. In terms of the Russian people, I would say, to start with that, I would say access to the court has been hugely important for Russian lawyers and Russian citizens. And Russia has the most pending cases before the court. So it's clearly being used as an avenue by Russian lawyers and applicants. Um, and many Russians see the court, the European Court of Human Rights, as their final court of appeal when they can't get justice domestically, as Tatiana said. And it provides human rights standards and it provides means of justice, as we all know. Um, the extent to which the court impacts on the government's behaviour is another matter. Russia is still a member of the Council of Europe, uh, despite threats to walk away, particularly during the sort of Crimea crisis when the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe suspended Russia's um, voting rights for a number of years. Russia does engage with the process, so it files comments on cases, it discloses documents to varying degrees, and it pays compensation. So in the Bezland school siege case, it paid nearly 3 million euros in compensation to the applicants. But it hasn't implemented around 80% of leading judgments against it. It's also passed an amendment to the constitution that stipulates that decisions by international bodies shall not be enforced if they run counter to the constitution. This was codifying um, previous decisions of the constitutional court, I think motivated primarily by the UCOS case in which the European court ordered uh, more than something like 1.9 billion euros to be paid to shareholders. Um, it's also actually in, runs counter to another provision in the constitution, which says that Russia should abide by international treaties. Um, so it, it's, it, in some ways, you would think it's hard to know why Russia stays. It's, it's so brazen now in its human rights violations that, um, and it so clearly doesn't, seem to care anymore what what the West thinks, that it is sort of surprising. But I think Putin plays a lot, and you know, Tatiana can correct me if she thinks I'm wrong, but I think Putin plays a lot to his domestic audience. And while he's a member of the Council of Europe, he can say that he is abiding by human rights and he can, you know, play his his um, political games. But another interesting aspect to this is, is the other aspect that you raised, Richard, which is the effect on the court of Russia's non-compliance. And that is really significant and it risks undermining its credibility. Um, and we, I think we can see the court's caution increasingly. So I mentioned a number of robust judgments against Russia, the Isayeva judgment, the Beslan judgment, the Zakharov judgment. They're really strong judgments. And yet I think the court is becoming increasingly cautious when it comes to high profile, controversial decisions and in that it fears being ignored. So just to give a couple of examples, 
In the Navalny extremist proceedings, which entailed the immediate liquidation, unlike this, the immediate liquidation of the most powerful opposition movement in Russia uh, and widespread consequential criminal prosecutions, the court refused to grant interim measures to suspend the liquidation. In the memorial case, it did, but not until the, we put the, we helped Memorial put in the interim measures. We put it in quite a lot earlier and it waited until the decision was taken by the domestic court um, until it, 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 it granted the order. And perhaps most significantly, um, the foreign agents case, which has been languishing at the court for more than seven years, when Memorial and the other NGO applicants were only potential victims. And it's been pending while the oppressive reach of the foreign agents law has been inexorably extended to media, to individuals, to unregistered associations, and the penalties have become harder and the searches have become more frequent. Um, and it, it stands by as Memorial is liquidated by the very law that it's failed to call out as unlawful. And by the way, that every other body, the Venice Commission, the Human Rights Commissioners, the UN have called out as unlawful. Um, and the only reason I can think of is for this failure is an unwillingness to address this issue in and what it means for its relationship with Russia. So this is a challenge and it's one that Russia's increasing current and increasingly brazen behavior is making more significant, I think, more urgent. Well, can I, perhaps for kind of an overview last question, come back to you, Tatiana, and just try and put this in the Russian domestic context in terms of what's happening uh, with human rights generally. So, I mean, here we obviously are very conscious of what's uh, happened with Alexei Navalny. we conscious about the uh, intimidation of journalists. Um, and, I mean, even over here we can see what happens to Russian dissidents with assassination attempts, extra-terror uh, over here. What, if anything, um, does the future hold for human rights NGOs in Russia? And indeed... Is there any cause for optimism and or are you just pessimistic about the future of human rights in Russia? Uh, the reply on the question, if there are any grounds for optimism, is uh, depends on what do you understand uh, op as optimism. <laughs> if, for example, you and you say it would be uh, optimism is uh, saying that memorial will not be liquidated. I would say no, there are no such, there are no grounds for such optimism. But if you ask whether, um, are there any grounds for to be such optimistic to say that uh, memorial employees will not be criminally prosecuted in the next few months, I will say there are grounds for such optimism. <laughs> uh, so, mm, Russia, it, oh, all depends on what uh, is optimism for you. What about um, human rights in Russia more generally? I mean, about human rights more generally in Russia um, under Putin. I mean, is there is is there any hope of an improvement in the rights of uh, and democracy? There is always hope. There is always hope, and that is the reason why we are continuing our work. My understanding of what uh, we have been doing for the last 10 years is not improving the human rights situation in Russia, but uh, trying to make its deterioration slower. Um, and I think that we will be able to do it for at least 
uh, some more time to slow the deterioration with uh, the human rights situation. Um, is that optimistic enough for you? I think we'll take what we can get. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's about as optimistic as, a, as most great Rish, Russian novels are optimistic in that, in that kind of broader sense, isn't it? Um, look, thank you. Thank you both um, so much. Tatiana, thanks to you, because um, what I didn't mention at the beginning is you're doing this interview, he's still suffering from COVID. But, um, you know, as, as Helen, and I, Helen and I have had on, on, on several occasions in talking to colleagues like you operating in fragile societies, it's so, it's so utterly humbling um, to listen to you and um, to hear the kind of work you have to do under the conditions you have to do. And if it helps that people all around the world are supporting you, in, at least in spirit, then I hope that's something. But thank you, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. And yes, support from all over the world, of course, it's something that is really, really important nowadays. And sorry for my English, which I know is not really great. It's a whole lot better than my Russian. Thank you, thanks very much. Helen, like so many of our conversations with human rights activists over the world, I mean, truly frightening, um, sometimes you know scarcely believable but always humbling all call ourselves human rights lawyers but you know that is actually not a you know it's a label i feel almost embarrassed to use in the same context as someone like tatiana what what were your kind of takeaways it just makes me realize how um what a kind of slippery slope attacks on human rights are and how we have to take the little things seriously and i'm not trying to kind of uh, compare the two things, but there's an amendment being put into the um, Freedom of Speech Higher Education Bill at the moment, which would require any donation over £50,000 from a foreigner to a university, including student fees, and backdated to be reported to the Office of Students and be on a register. And it's ostensibly to prevent foreign influence in academic life in the UK, but that's where, not very long ago, the foreign agents laws started in, in, in 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 yeah. Russia, well, listen. If foreign agents are going to be funding people participating in our public life, we need to know who they are and what they are. And it doesn't take very long before uh, you say, "Well, if you've got a foreign agent, and a foreign agent is unbelievably widely defined, you're closed down." So I think we really need to be very careful about how these, how, how you know, seemingly techy attacks on little bits of uh, access to a court or access to human rights play out, um, and and be piped well, as I was saying in, in the introduction, be quite um, astute to see things when they are an attack on the rule of law and, and to try and frame them in that way. Well, on that note, thank you, uh, Helen. Uh, we'll be back soon with a, another edition of the Matrix Law Pod. Thank you for listening.